0: and use promo code bear for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey.
1: This thing that was so rare and therefore valuable in Europe is here in abundance, and I want to claim and tame the wilderness as the advance of, you know, using that loaded terminology, civilization. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how we civilized Europe, mm-hmm. and that's what we're going to do here.
0: Who knew that American wilderness was such a contested, loaded, and difficult term to define? In this second episode, I'm still in search of understanding American ideals on wilderness and if, in fact, America's handling of wild lands is globally unique. But really, I'm on a personal journey to understand the genesis of my own ideas on wilderness. I thought they were my own, self-generated. But as I learn about America's peculiar history, I'm seeing more and more that I'm a product of a culture. I've got the same crew plus one new guy on this episode. We've got authors, Dr. Sarah Dant, Dr. Dan Flores, and Hal Herring. Also, author and Thoreau critic, Stephen Rennella. But new to the crew is documentary filmmaker, native Texan, and Mustang Wrangler, Ben Masters. The Bear Grease Academy of Backwoodsmanship, Philosophy, and Culture is back in session. I really doubt that you're going to want to miss this one.
2: The idea that Americans' energy was capable of literally taking the last barrel of oil out of the last piece of ground, well, that was, that was evident. This movement began to say, what if we didn't do that to every place?
1: I take infinite pains to know all the phenomena of the spring, for instance, thinking that I have here the entire poem, and then to my chagrin I hear that it is but an imperfect copy that I possess and have read, that my ancestors have torn out many of the finest leaves and grandest passages and mutilated it in many places. I should not like to think that some demigod had come before me and picked out some of the best of the stars. I wish to know an entire heaven and an entire earth.
0: That was Dr. Sarah Dant reading a quote from, and I hate to bring him up so early, Henry David Thoreau. We're continuing on in our pursuit of defining what wilderness is and what it means to America.
3: What is wilderness? And that's a loaded question. You know, there's the capital W wilderness. And then I think there's the, The wilderness experience that a person can have which is different you know for everybody but but wilderness to me i think of my ideal wilderness and that is the headwaters of the yellowstone river in a tributary called the thoroughfare in a place that's called hawk's rest it's 30 miles from the nearest trailhead the only way to get there is is by foot or by horseback and it's a place where there's no dams, there's no really sign of human civilization at all, except for a handful of trail signs. And it embodies everything that I think of as wilderness. And that's where I get my wilderness experience, you know, very far from humanity, as, as far from humanity as you can get in the lower 48. And I feel that whenever I go to places like the Bob Marshall or the Gila or the Teton Wilderness and the thoroughfare and the Wilderness of No Return in Idaho, these classic big wilderness spots in the American West. This is Ben Masters.
0: He's very well-traveled in America's big Western wildernesses.
3: So I think that the idea of what is wilderness, and I've, I've, I've struggled with this, what is that wilderness experience? But And I think every person is gonna get that feeling in a different place. And for me, I get that experience when I do a two-week pack trip into a deep wilderness. And for other folks, it could be something as simple as going for a weekend camping trip in a 3,000-acre state park.
0: Defining wilderness in terms of geography and defining the wilderness experience are very different things. We'll learn it gets even harder the further we go back in American history. Here's meat-eater's own Stephen Renella with some opening statements on defining wilderness.
4: This is just how I use it, okay? Mm-hmm. The Lee Metcalf Wilderness Area in Montana. The Frank Church Wilderness Area in Idaho. The North Slope of the Brooks Range in Alaska. Portions of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Portions of the Mississippi Delta, some of the Sky Island mountain ranges of New Mexico and Arizona, portions of the San Juans in Colorado, the boundary waters of Minnesota. I could go on our wilderness landscapes in my mind, because relative to everything else, they most closely resemble relative to everything else. What this landscape looked like upon European contact. So yeah. it's it's the wildest stuff relative to everything else. It's the stuff that most closely resembles what it did at the time of European contact, considering my caveat that then it was inhabited, however sparsely, by native people, and now it's not. And it's vulnerable because once you mess with it, it ceases to be wilderness anymore and it becomes some other thing. And mm-hmm. I worry about running out of it. Defining wilderness and
0: what it means to America is an important endeavor. Why, you may ask? Partly because of a little word often used in economics, it's used in farming, it's used in life called scarcity. In our current times, wilderness is one of the Earth's scarcest resources, and scarcity dictates value. It's ironic but scarcity is often a more powerful force than overflowing bushel baskets of plenty. Here's Dr. Dant on where some of our big wildernesses are.
1: The big ones are, of course, up in Alaska. The the biggest one in the continental United States is in Death Valley, so it's not like we're all going to go camp there. And the second biggest one is the Frank Church River of No Return in Idaho. Mm. So there are lots of... Big wilderness places, but there are also a lot of small wilderness places, and there are wilderness places in the east as well as in the west. And that was, again, something Frank Church really worked hard on because he said, we should have these rare and valuable places.
0: Rare and valuable. Rare and valuable, large and small, in the west and in the east. The largest wilderness in the lower 48 is in Death Valley in California in Nevada, and it spans over 3.1 million acres. That's news to me. In the last episode, Dr. Dan Flores told us wilderness is an idea and a reality. It's these two things. The idea part being the abstract way we talk about places where humans don't live and natural ecosystems dominate. Hal Herring told us that wilderness was a feeling. The reality of wilderness, the second part, is the 111 million acres designated as Federal Wilderness with a capital W. That's roughly 5% of American soil, which is governed by the strictest land designation in America, only open to human foot and equine traffic. You can't use anything with wheels. You can't even use a hang glider. True story, it's on the little signs. And you can't use anything with a motor. But to understand modern wilderness we've got to understand the macro scale journey of mankind. For this series, I've leaned heavily into a book written in 1967 by Roderick Nash called Wilderness in the American Mind. I nerded out hard on this book and loved it. Here's Dr. Flores with a critique on this past era of American ideals on wilderness. Remember, the Wilderness Act was signed into law in 1964. So there was a lot of activity around this stuff in the 1960s when this book was written.
5: Yeah, so I mean, that's a, a fantastic book. It's also 50 years old. I mean, one of the things that we began to cope with about 25 or 30 years ago was a, an emerging critique of not just Nash's story of wilderness, but a critique of what misperceptions lay at the foundation of what wilderness was in Mm. the American cultural story Mm. because the idea of wilderness in America which begins very early with people coming out of Europe who of course have lived in towns and villages and have done so for a thousand years Mm. and in a part of the world in Western Europe where all the charismatic animals have long since been wiped out Mm. I mean they're hunting partridges and things and Of course ordinary people are kept out of the kings and the nobleman's forests because they preserve stags and deer hunting and so forth for the wealthy so being introduced to a continent that struck them as being a wilderness continent virgin america was the term that was used so often You know, the name given to Virginia for the Virgin Queen was also Hmm. carried on to the continent itself as a virgin place. It was a misperception of what America was, Hmm. because America was actually an anciently occupied place. There had been people here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I mean, as one of the uh, geographers, William Denovan, who wrote a fantastic article in 1991 put it he called it the pristine myth was his his, one of the things he said in that article was that it took europeans and their presence in america three centuries before they had imposed the kind of landscape changes on the continent that they found from native people when they arrived Mm -hmm. but for a couple of reasons they just sort of ignored that One of the reasons, of course, was that as soon as Europeans arrived, they're bringing these old world diseases with them to a population of people who have never been exposed to things like smallpox and influenza and cholera and so forth and so on. And almost immediately within the first 50 or 75 years of European arrival in North America, the native population goes from nearly 5 million people in what is now the United States and Canada, down to about 900,000 people. Mm. And so suddenly the native population has shrunk by 500 percent, and it not only allowed for an ecological release of wildlife all over America, because there wasn't the same hunting pressure uh, that had been imposed on Mm. animals that that there had been for 10,000 years, but it also, the relative scarcity of native people in many parts of north america sort of confused europeans into thinking that they actually had inherited a place that didn't have any prior human history to it and so it made them think from the very beginning it made us think from the very beginning that we had snagged ourselves you know this original garden of eden
0: those are some deep waters And I think that perspective is very important to consider when we think about wilderness in America. I've heard Dr. Taylor Keene, a member of the Cherokee and Omaha tribes, say that upon first European contact with North America, there was no wilderness, but rather a great Native American civilization. And this is where this stuff in history gets contentious. I think every side looks back and wishes it could have been handled differently but that's beyond the scope of this conversation. However, it's useful in framing the foundational definitions of wilderness because a fundamental tenet of our definition of wilderness is that people aren't on the landscape altering it in any way. That's kind of what wilderness is. And Dr. Flores is saying that you'd have to go back so far in history to find this place humanless that it's almost pointless to think about it. I'll also say that since the release of the first podcast, a friend of mine from the Choctaw Nation named Clay from Oklahoma, he told me that they do have a traditional word similar to the English word of wilderness. We had made the statement that there were no words in the Native American languages that were similar to the English word wilderness. I stand corrected. Here is Clay saying the word in his native Choctaw language.
2: You would say these, Kowee, hiaka, a wilderness.
0: That is interesting. He also said that the central stories of the Choctaw and Chickasaw people tell about how they came into an uninhabited land and settled there in the southeast. Here's more from Dr. Dant.
1: This idea that when people first come from somewhere else not so we're not talking about indigenous people we're talking about people coming from somewhere else when they get to america part of what they see is all the things that are gone from mm. where they've been in england in france in germany and they come to america and here are trees and here are wild deer and here are here's this wealth of nature and they think of it in those terms that this thing that was so rare and therefore valuable in europe is here in abundance and i want to claim and tame the wilderness as the advance of you know using that loaded terminology civilization mm-hmm. that's how that's how we civilized europe mm-hmm. and that's what we're going to do here and the way you do that is to get big on nature you cut down the trees, you drain the swamps, you harvest the animals. And that's a way of creating value, both because those things are rare in Europe and also because then you're converting these wild, chaotic landscapes into something that's ordered and knowable. Mm-hmm. But again, it has to do with those, those ideas of value. What has value is what is rare. And once those wild places become rare, then we have that shift where romantics are thinking, you know, has some demigod come before me and harvested the best of the stars? I want to know an entire heaven and an entire earth.
0: Converting wild, chaotic landscapes into something ordered and knowable. Now that's interesting. What's hard to debate is that as a species, globally, we've worked extremely hard to get away from the instability of wild lands. You remember the etymology of wilderness, right? Self-willed or uncontrollable land of wild beasts. Here's Stephen Ranella with an interesting observation about human
4: nature. People who inhabit wilderness... Again, acknowledging that it's a somewhat squishy definition. People who historically have inhabited wilderness have jumped at every chance they could get to chip away at that wilderness. There are some exceptions. There are some rare exceptions. But for the most part, they've jumped at any chance. Our own Western European ancestors Obviously jumped at it in a big way ten thousand years ago. On this continent, Native Americans were very receptive to firearms. We're very receptive to steel axes. We're very receptive to different building materials, to different modes of transportation, to things that just would would strike us as development, strike us as having the means to make a greater faster, more profound impact on their environment. So yes, people that have, when I say people, I just mean like us humans outside of our, outside of all these differentiations we create like Western Europeans, native Americans, just people across the globe have marched willfully and readily in the direction of civilization. Very few exceptions. So if I didn't have this civilized veneer, if I didn't have this this thing that I've just w- was born into, raised in civilization, and came out of that respecting wilderness, yeah, I think it's fair to say that had I just been born of wilderness, I probably would be just like everybody else, and that I would grab at any chance to make it a little less hard to be there. I'll tell you this, Clay: if you and me were in that situation where we were indigenous hunter gatherers who for thousands of generations have been on the same patch of ground and all of our implements all of our building tools building equipment were just made of natural naturally occurring things that we could find on the landscape stone bone hide mm-hmm. and someone showed up and gave us a pallet of ready-mix concrete we would have laid that ready-mix concrete down in some fashion or another we would have said this stuff is amazing look yeah. at I made me a big old paved area. And here's where I'm going to start cooking. It's hard, doesn't wash away, doesn't get muddy. And we would wish we had more. We would want another pallet. We would quickly want another pallet of ready mix concrete. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guarantee it, dude. But knowing what we know right now, me and you, knowing what we now know, we might say, uh uh, man, you get that. Don't touch it. You get that ready mix concrete out of my face. I know where this uh, is headed. <laughs> That's an interesting point,
0: and it's hard to argue with. There are exceptions, but in general, mankind has been moving away from wilderness lifestyles. And to go back in the Bear Grease Academy, the Shawnee leader, Tecumseh, also in the Bear Grease Hall of Fame, and his brother, Tenskwatawa, the prophet, preached that going back to the traditional Indian ways of life and getting rid of all influence of Europeans. That would be their salvation. That's what he preached. However, they were met with stiff resistance from within their own tribe and the majority of other tribes. And in modern times, us trying to imagine ourselves not leaning into modernization is kind of a stretch. It would be like in modern times, someone who chooses not to have a cell phone. I mean, it's almost unimaginable. 99% of people can't pull that off, nor could our ancestors resist modernization. That's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's helpful. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter-acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. We've covered some ground already. And if you remember, Dr. Flores talked about the peculiarity of American history that gave us a unique perspective on wilderness which we've covered the first part, which was the European perception of the North American continent upon arrival. However, things shifted once wild lands became scarce. And this is one of the most interesting parts of this conversation. This will be on the Bear Grease Academy quiz at the end of this series. We've got to learn about a census in 1890 that shook the nation into an identity crisis. Dr. Dant is about to tell us about a pivotal moment in America's development of our modern wilderness doctrine.
1: There was um, a census in 1890 that no longer said there was a, you know, and they use the the word frontier, Mm -hmm. which is the, I mean, it's the census says that frontier is two or fewer people per square mile. Hmm. That's the definition of frontier. Mm -hmm. And there was no obvious demarcation between those lightly settled places and the more heavily settled places by the 1890 census. And for a lot of Americans in particular, that sort of provoked this crisis of identity. If that had been what had made us uniquely Americans, that's what Frederick Jackson, Turner, and some others argue, you can hear the Darwinian idea in there that we're evolving from Europeans into this unique Mm. American species, Mm -hmm. Homo Americanus, I like Mm -hmm. to call it. If that's gone, then how do we retain our uniqueness and our our specialness?
5: So it all gets amplified then at the end of the 19th century when uh, Frederick Jackson Turner writes that famous essay of his, the frontier, the significance of the frontier in American history, where he argues that it's the interaction with wild lands that turn Europeans into Americans. Right. And that, of course, leads to when we get to the 20th century, and it looks like, you know, the census in 1890 announces that the frontier is over. I mean, it throws some Americans into a kind of a crisis of identity that Mm. historians sometimes refer to as... uh, you know, a, a wilderness angst or frontier anxiety.
0: Because we didn't have it. Anymore. Because
5: you don't have it anymore. And so, how are we going to create? more americans if you don't have it
0: right i mean so in the, uh, the, uh, an american had to have a frontier
5: had to have that's a. that's what frontier. made us
0: americans that we had this frontier that's and exactly then frederick jackson turner was like yeah. frontier's dead
5: the frontier well he doesn't say necessarily it's dead but he publishes this essay in the early 1890s and it happens to come at the same time that the u.s census announces in the census of 1890 that the frontier has been so broken up by bodies of settlement that it's no longer possible to say that there is a frontier line Mm. in America. Mm. And Mm. that's what throws people into this frontier anxiety Mm. notion. And, you know, I mean, out of it emerges things like the Boy Scouts, for example, where, okay, Okay. we've got to go out and teach kids something about living in nature before they lose it. Uh, an When we've
0: got to have this formulated organization to do this. Got to because before, Americans yeah. would have just intrinsically had these opportunities and known these things. Absolutely.
5: Now we have to be uh, a lot more proactive about yeah. setting up the possibility for kids in particular to be able to experience the wild. And it's one of the reasons that hunting the Boone and Crockett Club at the time... Right. Uh, becomes most uh, very important in conservation, for example. In fact, in the lead-up to the passage of the Wilderness Act of 1964 and the debate on it started in the late 1950s, supposedly Frederick Jackson Turner's essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, was mentioned in testimony more than 200 times. Hmm. So the people who passed the Wilderness Act
0: We're reaching back that far.
5: Yeah. And they were, what they were saying is that we need wilderness because this is how America and Americans are created.
0: Americans were created by interaction with wild lands. Now that's interesting. Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis is important. It's kind of wild. I'm not sure that it's true, but this is how national identity is formed. This pioneering spirit, independence, self-reliance are all very American things applied in modern times in a whole bunch of areas of life outside of land management. Hanging in my home for the last 15 years is a framed quote from Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. It says, quote, to the laborer in the sweat of his labor, the raw stuff on his anvil is an adversary to be conquered. So was wilderness an adversary to the pioneer, but to the laborer in repose, able for the moment to cast a philosophical eye on his world, that same raw stuff is something to be loved and cherished, because it gives definition and meaning to his life. End of quote. Do y'all remember the infamous question I asked Steve Rinella about How much being an American impacted his way of thinking about wilderness? As I learn this deep history, it's as clear as a bell to me that I've been influenced by my culture. What the things hanging on your walls celebrate is a window into your culture. And I didn't even know about FJT's frontier thesis when I hung Aldo's quote on my wall. I'm sure y'all remember Alabama's son, and Wildlands author Hal Herring. Here's Hal on the wimpification of America and F.J. Turner.
2: Some of the arguments made for conserving the last of the wilderness were coming from Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier hypothesis or frontier theory that what defined the American spirit was the adversity and the, and the self-reliance required by the frontier or the wilderness. And people like Teddy Roosevelt particularly wrote about this. They were worried about kind of the wimpification of Americans, you know, coddled by civilization. And they wanted to make sure that there were places where people could still test themselves against nature, you know, raw and and unaltered. And so there's a lot of currents here. I want to say wimpification
0: one more time. Maybe the algorithm will pick it up and direct people here who are looking for a cure. <laughs> I asked Hal for more about American identity being wrapped around wilderness. Here's an interesting sequence.
2: In, a, in the United States, the reason that we kind of have uh, this designated wilderness, how we got to that, came from the earliest days of the frontier when say the buffalo were gone 1876, 77 in Miles City, Montana. People were looking for the last of the, of the commercially huntable buffalo, right? And the Civil War had shown Americans the true bloodiness of, of, our, of our national experiment. So 1867, you're seeing like a lot of the Plains Indian Wars starting and you're having all these people back east and I don't, I don't want to say this in a derogatory way, but people back East are realizing that the frontier is being pushed so hard so fast that there may be absolutely nothing left of that if we don't make some choices. And these are people who are more insulated from it, although they may, may might make expeditions. But one of the things, so you're, li- you're listening to, I always talk about John Muir and Gifford Pinchot. As these two dynamos that are working against each other. And, Muir, John Muir was completely immersed in the beauty of solitude and the and the grandeur of untrammelled spaces and wilderness. Whereas Gifford Pinchot was a man who believed in managing landscapes and and getting the most out of them with sustainable yield, right? And those two dynamos are kind of like the, a, a, a picture of America we have these hugely contradictory notions at all times. And I always like to talk about it like two turbines, it's two magnets in a turbine and they're spinning and they're making this electricity through their contradictions. And it's, it's part of what, what I love about our country the most is there's all these contradictory ideas that are spinning at the same time. In our case here, it was the kind of preservation of the wilderness versus the absolute exploitation that people were witnessing at that time, right? The Eastern forests were going down like like wheat in front of a combine. The white pines were going down clear to Michigan at that point, I think even even into Minnesota. And so the idea that Americans' energy was capable of literally taking the last barrel of oil out of the last piece of ground, well, that was, that was evident. This movement began to say, what if we didn't do that to every place? What if we didn't do that to every place?
0: Sometimes it's shocking to me that we slowed down enough to ask that question. I really like Hal's talk of America's contradictions. We wiped out the wilderness, and then right at the end, right when we were about to lose it all, we decided to save some of it. I'm gonna dig in with how, and I'm still trying to quantify, if America's wilderness doctrine is unique. Here, he brings up a unique point.
2: What we have in America with our system of wilderness land, it's unique in the world because it was a choice that the American people through Congress and everything made. So if you go, I've been in places in Mexico that I would, would be wilderness. They are wilderness quality lands, as they say. But a lot of the things that are left in the world, I think of parts of the Amazon, and I've, I've been in the Amazon, but I've been in not into the farthest back country. Those are those are only there because people lacked the means to get at them. You think of some of the Himalayas or Kazakhstan. You know, those are places you couldn't build roads into, right? They weren't looking for anything there. Whereas in the United States, after the frontier, we found ourselves capable of getting everywhere, right? Like you look at the system of roads in the, say, Shoshone National Forest, or you look at how people were using the Sierras of California. We could get everywhere, and we were getting everywhere. And so the American system... And, I, and I, don't, I don't know about the largeness of it, the size of it, say, vis-a-vis uh, what's in Russia and Siberia and in the Taiga. But I think what the difference here is that America was a choice to have it.
0: The fact that we chose to designate and protect wilderness, especially in the early days, was unique globally. And I think that's really important. I'd say today, though, more lands globally are being protected on purpose. But in many parts of the world, the remaining wilderness was a byproduct of not being able to get to it. And I do think that intent is important. It's also only fair to bring up that wilderness preservation is a direct result of financial prosperity. We had the luxury of being able to preserve wilderness. Sometimes in other parts of life, you wonder how somebody is able to do something so good. And often, it's simply an issue of the financial ability to pull it off. If 70% of us didn't have jobs and we couldn't feed our families, perhaps our ideas on setting aside wilderness would be much different. Here's how, with an interesting thought about prosperity and wilderness as a status symbol.
2: Senator Clinton P. Anderson of New Mexico was a leader of the conservation movement in the 88th Congress and during the wilderness hearings he said wilderness is an anchor to windward knowing it is there we can also know that we are still a rich nation tending our resources as we should we're not a people in despair searching every last nook and cranny of our land for a board of lumber a barrel of oil a blade of grass or a tank of water. And so what I think that Senator Anderson meant right there was exactly what they were talking about in 1867, 68. He was talking about making a choice that we were the kind of people who could make a choice. Yes, we could destroy this, but we choose not to. We don't have to sack every last corner for every last piece of grass. That was good.
0: Here's Ben Masters on America's uniqueness with wilderness. And hey, my first intro to Ben was through his 2015 film called Unbranded, where he and some buddies rode Mustangs from Mexico to Canada through the Rocky Mountains. It was a really cool film. I'm sure he's done a bunch of other stuff since then that he's way more proud of. But here's Ben.
3: I think that our American ideals of wilderness, of Preserving places that should be untouched by humankind isn't unique to the United States, but I do think that it is truly remarkable that the United States was the first country to, in policy and within government, value that. And I think that that should be something that should be recognized and treasured. I feel like there's this... Uh, since within our modern day society that, you know, the United States is a country that, you know, is very materialistic, that is very consumer driven, that really only cares about the economy. But in reality, the fact is that we have, we kind of set the stage and set the precedent for a lot of governments to emulate around the world of the value of conserving wilderness.
0: Bring us further along on this reality of wilderness, actual geography. On March 1st, 1872, the federal government bought 2 million acres in northwest Wyoming for $40,000. It was America's and the world's first large-scale preservation of wilderness, and they called the little track of land Yellowstone National Park. I think this was a landmark moment in human history. The trajectory of Homo sapiens up until very near this point had been fighting to get out of the wilderness. But at this tipping point, we reach back to save some of it. Alanis Morissette should have added a fourth verse to her 1996 hit song, Ironic, about the irony of the preservation of wilderness. I can't believe I'm about to do this. For 20,000 years... He fought against the wild. Too many variables to keep his family safe and fed. He cut down the trees. He planted grains with his wife. Then in 1872, we bought two million acres outright. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? <laughs> I can't believe that made the final cut. Cut that out, Phil. <clears throat> back on track and to understand more of the general timeline. And I really hate to do it, but we've got to bring back up Henry David Thoreau again. But in the 1850s, he was credited as one of the first voices calling for practical action to preserve wilderness in America. He believed that each town should have a primitive forest from 500 to 1,000 acres where people could just go. He also believed in this larger scale preservation of wilderness and that that would be an intellectual reservoir and nourishment for civilized man. And as far as I can find, Arkansas's hot springs is the oldest land set aside in America as what they had originally called a national reserve. And that was done in 1832. Later, that would become a national park. So the first preservation of land started in 1832. Thoreau was a recipient of this message in the 1850s. And then it wasn't until 1872 that the first national park, Yellowstone, was actually preserved. But in case we're getting too proud of our American wilderness efforts, here's how bringing us back down to earth. Remember these two words, rock and ice.
2: I mean, American wilderness is similar to, to wilderness in other, in other parts of the world because it's like, it's not the rich grasslands, you know, it's it was still lands that you could not make them pay like you couldn't you couldn't if if there's i tell you nevada would have all kind of wilderness but it has gold right there would be all kinds of places in america that would be kind of wilderness but there was something there that you could make pay and so those are not wilderness like there's no wilderness in iowa because it's all black dirt right our wilderness areas share something in common with the rest of the world, in that they were the last places people could go and find something that would, you know, that would pay. Early, like 1960s, 50s wilderness folks in the United States, they were kind of admitting that this every wilderness bill was a rock and ice bill. They were saying, "Well, all the wildernesses that we got are basically lands that you can't do anything with anyway." <laughs> And so it was kind of like de facto wilderness because you'd have to get a climbing rope, you know, and and hardware to get up there. That's not totally true, and especially not true, like in the Bob Marshall, which encloses a a, a large grassland system in the upper North Fork of the Sun River. So there were there is grass in there, and and that was made it very controversial because people said, well, there's grass in there. I'm, I I want to keep running the thousands and thousands of sheep in there and so we have mostly set aside as wilderness the places we couldn't do anything else with that's true shucks man that takes
0: some of the nobility out of the story of preserving wilderness but i guess that doesn't matter maybe nobility in matters like this is a myth anyway
2: here's another mic dropper pragmatism so, so the other thing here, I don't want to miss this because there is an enormous pragmatism in American wilderness that was not in other countries. Okay, so the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is one I'm most familiar with, it was set aside very early because it is the headwaters of the Sun River. And the Sun River is the Gibson Dam project, which is a huge irrigation project on the Fairfield Greenfield bench here where I live. And so the Bob Marshall Wilderness owes its existence to the need for irrigation water down below. And if you go through the American West, the same thing applies every, um, in almost every, every wilderness area that I know of is was set aside originally the idea was to protect some kind of headwaters 62 percent of all the available water in the in the american west originates on federal public land and that is not a mistake (laughs)
0: pragmatism is a good word for taking the romance and fun right out of the story nah i'm just kidding it actually makes american wilderness a tighter story and more understandable. There are multiple reasons these lands were preserved and multiple reasons why people celebrate their preservation today. I think all of this stuff is fascinating and it's helping me unravel and decode who we are as Americans. And oh, did I just hear the 330 bell ring? Sounds like the Bear Grease Academy is out for this session. But we've got one more session on wilderness And it won't be easy. Turns out there are even more problems and challenges ahead. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. At first light, we just launched our new Circa Big Game Western Hunting Pattern, Camo. I've worn it extensively out west, and it's good stuff. Brent and I will be at the Black Bear Bonanza on March 9th in Bentonville, Arkansas. We hope to see you there. And I look forward to talking with everyone on the Bear Grease Render next week. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now, become a snack subscriber, and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com and use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash grease.